You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadig Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. We are this Sunday and always the show of ideas, never, ever once the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning. This morning's show, we're going to examine one of the, probably the second most important issue Uh, in California and therefore in the nation today. Uh, We got elbowed out by Gavin Newsom's edict. Uh, We are not the most important issue in California. We got dropped down to the number two slot, but it is an important issue nevertheless. And the issue is, and we are going to use a lot of overused words this morning, we are going to discuss the issue of the housing, and now get ready for the finger quotes, housing crisis, in finger quotes, in California. Is there a shortage of housing? What does that even mean? How, If there is a shortage of housing in California, how did it happen? Did it happen naturally? Is it inevitable that we're going to run out of places for people to live? Or is it artificial and government-induced? No headline there. To examine this issue, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Larry McQuinlan. Uh, Larry has studied this issue long and hard and has recently written about it. Uh, He will share the results of his examination this morning. Uh, Larry is the Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Entrepreneurial Innovation. And don't we love those two words, entrepreneurial innovation, uh, at the Independent Institute. The Independent Institute is a wonderful think tank uh, located in Northern California, in Berkeley. It does magnificent work. It has a wonderful uh, cadre of very hardworking, knowledgeable scholars, uh, economists, uh, philosophers, and the like. I commend both the writings of the economists of the Independent Institute and of Larry specifically uh, on his show uh, from the Independent Institute. And uh, Larry has a special distinction which he will share with us. He has invented a very valuable tool for evaluating government. He has invented the Golden Fleece Award. We will start with that. Larry, welcome to the show this morning. Good morning, Bob. It's great to be with you again. Good morning. Nice to have you back. Now, Larry, before we get into the business at hand, and it will be relevant, I dare say, in the margins, tell us about your California Golden Fleece Awards. Well, we've been doing this for several years now, and we spotlight government waste, fraud, and abuse, both at the state and local level in California. So, as you can imagine, it's a very target-rich environment, and we're never short of ideas on what to write about. Um, but the, the intent of the award is to you know, bring to bear a special focus on an issue that is particularly um, oppressive to Californians across the political spectrum. Uh, housing, as you mentioned, is a perfect example of that. And to you know, give the public a deeper understanding and more information they would they would normally get from the media in order to hold local and state government officials uh, feet to the fire and hold them accountable and hopefully kind of arm them with the ammunition they need to make meaningful change in public policy in California. And you perform a wonderful service in doing so. Uh, I'm reminded, I think, that uh, th- there was a Senator Coburn who had a similar process in the Senate. He was, I believe, from Oklahoma, and he he was doing, he copied your idea probably, uh, maybe he started first, who knows, but that was very effective, and it was very readable and very interesting, and it helps uh, 
interested taxpayers, interested citizens to really get an insight into their government in a way that's not otherwise available. So that right. award yeah, we, alone. We kind of see it as a, you know, a transparency project, you know, a public's right to know and to let them know, you know, how government really works and what policy is really doing, the effect it's really having on the state of California. And um, just to arm people with a lot more information so that they can approach their public officials with more facts and more uh, understanding of what's really going on and hopefully make some positive change in policy. My only criticism with the structure of the Golden Fleece Award is I believe you do it every quarter. Right. (laughs) You give a new award. Uh, It should be every day. A new yeah. one. <laughs> You're right. Or but, of course, it might require an increase in your staff. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, there's no now, uh, now Larry, lack of targets. For sure. Now, Larry, this morning um, I, we're going to be discussing an issue that, together with the related issue of homelessness, where California is numero uno in the country in producing homeless people, uh, we're going to discuss the subject of the, and I'm going to say alleged, but that's not supposed to be an in-your-face comment, just my view, the alleged lack of housing, the housing crisis in California. Uh, and the how, study of housing in California is a wonderful uh, concept to study because there's a rich history. It goes back maybe as far back as California's statehood when California became uh, in the 1850s and through and including uh, perhaps 10 years ago or less, uh, a magnet not for the country but for the world of people to move here and California loved to have that image it just didn't wasn't able for one reason or another you'll discuss the reasons to accommodate the results of its own success it was able to instill in the minds of citizens of the world let alone the country how desirable california was single-family houses orange trees in the backyard the surf and all that goes with uh, this California lifestyle. So California had the world's most effective real estate advertising campaign, profoundly successful, and then was, in one way or another, you will explain, victimized by its own success. Now, before we get into the details, let's do some big picture stuff, if you will, Larry. And... uh, Every In the news, quite frequently, until it got elbowed out by the uh, coronavirus news, which elbowed out everything else, in the news uh, has been for some time the absence of housing, the housing crisis in California in general and in the Bay Area and perhaps L.A. as well. So to the extent that you agree that there is a crisis. Help me understand, help our listeners understand what exactly the crisis is. What's wrong with housing, big picture, in California today? What is the source of the crisis? Well, the source of the crisis dates back to around the mid-1980s when both state government and local government started to erect more and more artificial restrictions to housing development in California. I would say after World War II, up until, you know, through the 1950s and 1960s, um, the housing market worked very well in California. And as you said, I mean, we were kind of um, a victim of our own success in a way because we had the sun in the surf, the California lifestyle, um, booming economies, both in entertainment and aerospace and uh, eventually in Silicon Valley. So, you know, people from not only around the United States but around the world wanted to move here. And the housing market worked well for about the first 30 years of that or so, where it was flexible, it accommodated new construction. You saw a lot of um, big track housing going in, especially around the Bay Area. 
in places. So um, there was a allowance of the supply to expand the growing demand. Um, but over time, as I mentioned in the mid-1980s, we saw all of these new impediments to uh, new housing uh, passed by state and local governments. And we can talk about kind of the list of what those are. Yeah. But as a result, we will, of course, see yeah, housing entrepreneurs entering California and investing the capital that was needed to meet the growing demand and to keep housing prices um, either stable or, in some cases, actually declining for a, for a while. Um, and, and now we're faced with uh, housing costs of about two, two and a half times the national average because we're not building to meet our growing uh, success in California in terms of drawing new people to the state. Now, Larry, let's let's unpack a little bit and let's do a little economics. You said um, there. Um, you talked about uh, artificial uh, limitations on the market. Mm-hmm. Of course, any governmental measures are artificial. If by artificial you mean interfering with the natural supply and demand in the marketplace, so any. Minimum wage laws uh, are artificial impediments uh, to economic growth. So, per se, any government, any regulation of the free market is artificial because artificial only has one meaning, which is outside of the free market. And, And the second comment is there's a word that often is used in discussions of policy issues and often used on my show, and that is this word that to me is mischievous. It is, it was working. I always perk up when people that I'm having a conversation with use that concept of something is working or not working. And the question is, there is there has to be an underlying standard that the speaker has in mind when saying something works or doesn't work. It cannot work or not work in the abstract. It's got to be according to criteria. So when you say the market was working at one time for housing and then it stopped working, what does working mean in that context? Well, an economist, to an economist, that would mean that the market allows for entrepreneurs to invest new capital into a market to, in this case, build housing up until the point where it's no longer, you're no longer receiving what economists call normal rates of return on that capital investment. So therefore, the additional investment would, would stop at that point or slow down um, at any rate. So... Working to an economist means basically that capital can flow from uh, one use to another use freely until the point of when entrepreneurs are making normal rates of return. Beyond that point, they would make sub uh, below normal rates, and the capital then would move on to other industries or under sec- other sectors of the economy. I mean, that's how an economist would look at it, and these impediments that are imposed by government artificially restrict the movement of capital and the investment in housing in California. So to an economist um, schooled in free market economics as I am, I mean, that that would be seen as um, an artificial impediment to a a market working efficiently, uh, correctly, um, and therefore you get what we've seen in California, which is housing and rental prices that are sky high and continue to increase. But if if prices are sky high, um, there's no indication that the demand for sky high housing prices is diminished. In fact, housing prices are high and are still being built only because there is a demand. So Mm -hmm. isn't there still a healthy demand for expensive housing and aren't entrepreneurs still rewarded for building expensive housing. 
So isn't the supply and demand still working, i.e. housing is being built, um, because the demand is there? So is it fair to say the problem is not the supply and demand for housing isn't working, but the resulting the result of that supply and demand is forcing up the price of housing so certain types of housing is not being built. But housing in gross, there's still a demand or else they wouldn't be building new, albeit expensive housing. Is that a, is that a fair summary or am I missing something? Um, yeah, I mean, what, what you said is partially right, I would say. because I mean, you're seeing um, the Bay Area is obviously compared to other labor markets in the economy uh, in the U.S. and around the world is very productive. And people that work here command very high salaries. And as a result, the people who do move here, not only from around the world, but, I mean, around the country, but also outside the country um, to a large extent, especially in Silicon Valley, are making, you know, wages far in excess of anything that they could get in their home country or their home area. Um, and it's much higher than what we see in other parts of the United States. So that, obviously, that that income then is helping to drive the prices higher for housing in California. Um, and some and some housing is being built, as you mentioned, and it's it does tend to be at the higher um, price of the spectrum of housing prices. So um, so it doesn't mean nothing gets built. But um, but we're seeing you know a very select elite group of people who are able to afford the housing here, and things at the lower rungs of the housing ladder aren't being built that could be built, um, but aren't because of the restrictions on the supply of uh, new capital coming into the housing market. Uh, now now we're getting somewhere. Now the question is. Um, just following this thread a little bit further, is there a housing crisis in Beverly Hills? Is there a housing crisis in Palm Springs? After all, housing in those two markets and many others are very expensive. Is there a housing crisis on Park Avenue condos? Well, the answer is crisis. Well, of course not. But for sure, there is a shortage of low-income housing. So now we're going to drill down, Larry, and really do the good stuff. So exactly, if there's no housing crisis in Beverly Hills, if there's no housing crisis on Rodeo or Park Avenue or any of the other um, very high uh, cost of housing areas around the country, and there are many, many, if that is not a crisis, then why is it a crisis if there's no cheaper housing in San Francisco. Is in San Francisco, or the Bay Area, just becoming one big Park Avenue, one big Beverly Hills? And why is that a crisis, if that is the case? Well, I would phrase that a little differently and say that people in Palm Springs and Beverly Hills can afford the costs of government regulations. It's, it's not that it's not having an impact. And in fact, I think we would see more housing built in those areas as well, well, without the restriction. Um, but it's just that people of that income range can afford to pay for all the restrictions that are imposed, whereas in other parts of the state where, um, you know, people don't have that kind of wealth or don't make that kind of salaries, can't afford it, and therefore the housing doesn't get built. So, so therefore... Um the crisis is that, but if the crisis only is in the Bay Area, that some people can't afford to live there, then they don't live there. And the and people don't have an inherent birthright to live in the most valuable real estate on earth. It's not a right that people have. People have a right, perhaps, or at least a reasonable expectation that they want to live comfortably but it doesn't mean in the most expensive real estate on earth. And uh, maybe the crisis is that to take the Bay Area, and by the way, what's happening in the Bay Area is happening all over. This is not a California topic. The issue is nationwide. But what's happening in California uh, or in the Bay Area is the Bay Area has this tradition of having 
a wonderful mix in its population of lower-income people, uh, a mix in ethnicity, a mix in people on the various uh, rungs of the wage scale, but it has that that concept of itself, and it's in effect legislating, as we will learn, that concept away. So San Francisco either has to be willing to accept being Beverly Hills North in terms of housing prices or adjust the policies that you will explain uh, at the second half of the show. So it's not a it's only a crisis if you say, but we like it the old ways. We like it the way it was in the summer of 68. Uh, we like uh, it to be cheap. And yet they legislate to make sure it's not cheap. So is the crisis nothing other than a lifestyle crisis rather than an economic or a housing quantity crisis issue? Well, I, I would agree with you that nobody has a right to live wherever they want to live. But I would also add to that is that nobody has a right to use government force to exclude other people from having a roof over their head if, if a housing entrepreneur is willing to build a home for someone and someone wants it or needs it, I don't think anyone has the right to use government to stand between that entrepreneur who's willing to build a home and the person who needs a home. To me, that's immoral. And that's what these rules and regulations do. They impose a barrier that no longer allows that link between the entrepreneur and the customer to take place and, and allow for housing to be built that's needed. And you've gotten to the heart of the matter by, by pointing out, and now we're going to get back to a, a word that you mentioned earlier, which is artificial. So now, Larry, you're exactly right. Of course you are. And we're getting to the heart of the issue, and that is that the artificiality, the property rights issue, which we are going to focus on uh, in the second part of the show, is that the free market acting without artificial, i.e. government interference, the free market would satisfy that need. It knows how to do it. And the crisis, the alleged crisis, which is artificial because it's governmentally induced, prevents the free market from doing its thing and satisfying the need for for low-income housing. So what the, the lesson that you will explain in the second half of our show is all of the subtle ways that nimbyism and, and a government's view of what the world ought to look like prevents, prevents the market from supplying the housing needs. So this is a government-induced crisis, not a crisis caused by the free market. And when we come back from a very short break with Larry, Larry will help us understand by looking under the, under the hood of government operations and point out to all of us how government uh, which on the one hand professes to be determined to solve the housing, quote, crisis, close quote, in fact, by its actual behavior, prevents that, and government has been the cause of the absence of housing. It's very sinister, very scary, but most importantly, it is solvable, and Larry will explain how. This is Bob Zader speaking with Larry McQuinlan. Uh, Larry has, uh, has studied the housing crisis in San Francisco and in the California at large at length, and he understands, and he will help us understand what the problem is and, most importantly, how we fix it, because the fix is right around the corner. We'll be back in 30 short seconds. I'm Bob Zadig, broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. 
At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. Book now available at bobzadek.com. Welcome back to the Bob Zadig Show, longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning to my conversation with Larry McQuinlan. Larry is a uh, senior fellow and director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute, a wonderful think tank, a productive think tank operating out of Berkeley, California. Larry has just released uh, a new study how to Restore the California Dream, where he examines how we got to this, quote, crisis, close quote, in the absence of affordable, whatever that may mean, housing in California. And since his study is how to restore it, Larry doesn't just uh, point out the problems, but offers the solutions as well. And Larry, uh, the solutions are, of course, an equal part of the discussion. But first, Larry, uh, help us understand what have been the tools which government in California and elsewhere uses so effectively, if not inadvertently, to suppress the supply of housing. Well, in the report, we itemize about eight different rules and regs that have the biggest impact in terms of suppressing investment in housing in California. So um, I'll just tick off some of the major ones. Uh, obviously, zoning and other land use restrictions is one of the most important, especially for multifamily housing development or what we would call like apartments or condos or duplexes triplexes, that sort of thing. Uh, many communities in California uh, prevent any construction of apartment buildings and have done so for up to a decade. So no, um, only thing that's zoned is single-family homes. That's the only thing you can build, but you can't build multifamily homes. So that that's really worked to um, suppress the amount of housing, especially low-income housing. Another one. Um, now, Larry, just a, Larry, one, one question. I'm sorry, one question on zoning. Zoning is, to me, one of the hardest issues for me to form my own opinions about. And here's why. Um, and I find myself parting company uncomfortably with other libertarians on this issue. I, I start with a very kind of simple to me question. What's wrong, as I sit in my home, what's wrong with my wanting through local government to control the character of the environment, the town, the street on which I live? That's quite natural. I think everybody would like to have some control of that. Some people can and some people can't. But I... I want to protect the value of my property, and zoning is either um, hurting somebody else or helping me. It's helping me. So help me understand that I'm really – it's a, it's a, a creed de cours. It's a help me understand what I'm missing about that natural desire to – preserve the quality of my life. I'm not harming somebody else. Help me understand the issue. Sure. Um, so let me try to, to convince you on this point. So there's nothing wrong with trying to maintain the character of your neighborhood. The question is how you do it. Um, there's a right way to do it, and, and in my opinion, a wrong way to do it. The wrong way to do it is through government zoning restrictions. Um and the right way to do it is through private 
neighborhood associations or community associations or homeowners associations where you form a contract between neighbors and you say this is now a private community we've we've set up this charter or contract amongst the people who live in this community and these are the characteristics we want to maintain in this community absolutely nothing wrong with that and what it does allow then is for outsiders to buy the right into the community so if i was a developer and said you know i wanted to build some additional housing in your homeowners association community i could go to the homeowners association members and say i i will give you two thousand dollars each or whatever the amount is to build additional homes in there or build a convenience store or school or whatever it is um today everybody has an incentive to say no nobody has an incentive to say yes so with the private neighborhood association you could at least create this incentive system where you could buy your right into a community by offering the members of the private association a payment in order to build today uh, people have no incentive to ever vote yes for new housing there's no reason or new anything in their community because all they see is negatives all they see is downsides more traffic more people there's no benefit to them and some of the downsides are imaginary, I think, and some are real. But um, but whatever they are, real or imagined, people just see the the negative impacts of development because there's no incentive for them to say yes. So I think moving towards private uh, neighborhood associations, which we've written a lot about at Independent Institute in a book called Voluntary Cities, um, would be the way to go because... Neighbors, local communities could control the character of their neighborhood. No, no problem with that. It would all be done through contract. It would be enforceable. Um, and But yet you maintain this opportunity to still change it somewhat voluntarily by buying your right into the, to the neighborhood. So in my opinion, that would be the right way to go. And, you know, private na- homeowners associations are very popular around the country. Um, people love them. And because and they love it they because are. it does limit um, ex, what economists would call negative externalities being imposed on them. So, so zoning is, of course, by zoning, you decrease artificially decrease the opportunity to increase supply, thereby uh, the the supply and demand dynamics. Simply, if you decrease the opportunity to increase supply and the demand is a constant, the cost goes up. So that's quite right. clear. That's how it all works. Uh, what are some other uh, artificial, i.e. statutory or regulatory uh, use uh, events that increase artificially, as we have said, the cost of housing? Well, another one is building codes, which have really decimated uh, single-room occupancy apartment buildings. These are very low-cost housing for low-income people, many of them, you know, uh, homeless or previously homeless people. And they used to be very common in cities. Oftentimes there were older hotels that were converted into what's called SROs. Um, But now the building codes have really almost made it impossible to, to operate one or build one anymore because building codes mandate perfection in many cases. You know, you have to have a kitchen in every unit. You have to have a bathroom in any, every unit. You have to have what's considered, you know, proper ventilation or, um, or proper, um, you know, rules about how many people can live in a unit or how many, how, you know, density restrictions, how many people can live on a particular lot. And all of these rules and regs have, have worked to suppress um, and, and basically eliminate housing at the very lowest rungs of the housing ladder. And um, and now we're seeing even uh, building codes that are targeting um, some of the highest levels of, of uh, housing in California with solar mandates. Now we have residential solar mandates in California where if you build a new home, it has to have solar panels on the roof. That's going to add anything between ten to $40,000 a unit. And um, so these building codes, which appear like very helpful you know we're looking out for the interests of the poor 
um, actually end up doing the opposite in terms of eliminating housing that that they it's no frills housing obviously but it's housing that they can afford and it's much better to have a roof over your head and live in a clean um, environment rather than living on the streets and that and unfortunately for a lot of people when these SROs disappear the streets are their first option for housing or, or lack and of when you housing. say it's no frills uh, I I would make the world's most mild disagreement with your labeling of it SROs and the like being no frills housing. I would prefer to say they are less frills. The fact that there are windows, the fact that there is it is heat, the fact that it is protection from the elements, the fact that it is infinitely better than the alternative below it. Of co- mm-hmm. It has more frills than what's below it and less frills than what's above it. So no frills kind of begs a question, but that's okay, Larry. We're still friends. <laughs> Good. Uh, and, and another one so, that so, I'm sure so, that you've talked a lot about on your show already is the California Environmental Quality Act, um, CEQA. And um, that's used time and time again to either delay or stop housing development projects by demanding these lengthy, detailed environmental impact reviews that um, are usually challenged then in court. And these court costs, court delays can go on and on to the point where developers just back out of developing the project. And they'll build in Arizona or Texas or Nevada where they can get things done quickly. Any kind of sequel litigation, on average, increases the delay of a housing project in California by about two and a half years. Most developers and builders don't have that kind of time to wait. They'll just move on and build elsewhere, and that's what we're seeing. Um, but as you know, I mean, CEQA is also used, these environmental reviews are used to basically blackmail developers into paying um, either hiring union uh, workers are paying union wages to workers. So again, that increases the cost of construction because now you're adding um, higher uh, construction uh, salaries or wages onto the bill of that project. And Larry highlights an issue where, in fact, there is a California-only verb. It's a verb in the English language, but only in California, where unions will approach a prospective building project and threaten that they will sequa you. Sequa becoming a verb, which means bring an environmental quality lawsuit, knowing that's going to add to the cost tremendously and the delay. And they say, however, we will not sequa you if you accommodate our modest needs of union labor, etc. So that's how sinister it all has become. Sequel was a statute that had good intentions in the beginning at the very nascent stages of the environmental movement, but now has become because, and the secret in sequa, without getting too much into the weeds, is that you don't have to be an affected party. Any Anybody in California can bring a lawsuit under CEQA to attack a development or proposed development, even if they are totally unaffected by it. And that's where the club comes about. So believe it or not, that's the stat, status of the law in California. And all of these issues, as Larry has pointed out, add profoundly to the cost of housing. So it's not greedy builders it's not exploitation it's that we have we the builders have no choice we have to charge more than the cost of construction to make a profit to be induced to do so so take the cost add our regular profit and that's why housing is so expensive now you also mentioned i think larry in your study nimbyism um, you and I will have a short conversation about whether that is a problem or whether nimbyism is a right that people have. So explain nimbyism to our friends. Well, nimbyism, I mean, that stand, NIMBY stands for not in my backyard. 
and it's over time it's become very organized in California where you have groups that are constantly active challenging housing developments in California, particularly in local communities, and they'll say, okay, perhaps you can build here, but it has to look like this, X, Y, and Z, and if it doesn't look like this, um, we're not going to allow it. And um, usually that's through building permits, which is another thing that I didn't mention yet, but um, the, the city and or county just won't issue the building permits that are necessary to build it unless it complies with the vision of uh, the NIMBYs, which is usually, um, if it is allowed to be built at all, it's going to be very, um, like, stack-and-pack housing near transit hubs. Um, that's usually what's permitted otherwise, um, and that, that kind of plays into the, the climate change green vision of the NIMBYs as well. So it's it's very limited um, housing in very specific areas, and it doesn't allow for the expansion of housing at the rate that's necessary to bring prices down across the spectrum. I mean, as we talked about earlier, you know, expensive housing is being built for wealthy or well-off people, but at the at the medium and lower ends of the housing ladder, things aren't being built. Um, just to get it, give you a perspective, despite all the hand-wringing by politicians and all the pronouncements to fix this problem, California issued fewer residential building permits in 2019 than in 2018. So we're actually headed in the wrong direction. If, if by measuring this, we're, we measure it by um, building permits issued. Um, and even an issued building permit doesn't mean the building will be Built. Oftentimes they decide not to use the permit and not to go forward with the project because of all of these other costs that get piled on or all of these delays, as we mentioned, with the environmental regulations. So, but if you just look at the permits alone, we're actually moving in the wrong direction rather than the right direction in terms of the, the amount of housing that's being built. And a lot of that is driven by NIMBYs at the local level that are um, using their political uh, persuasion and, and um, votes and campaign contributions to limit housing in their communities. And NIMBYism is, again, an area that I am less, I am less disturbed by it than other people in this regard. I say... Not in my backyard. Well, darn it, I would like to control what is built in my proverbial backyard. I would be very unhappy if I couldn't control it. And I'd be very unhappy uh, if my neighbor or somebody nearby could do something with their property that makes the quality of my life lower. And we have, have had in the common law forever the principle of common law nuisance where, in fact, I can prevent somebody from performing an activity next door like smoke blowing into my property where I am given and have always been given under the common law the right to stop it. So to me, it's nothing other than an extension of the law of nuisance, which is accepted by all of us as an appropriate common law concept. So NIMBYism to me is directly associated with it, perhaps an extension, and maybe you would say too much of an extension to the common law of nuisance. But I, I, I'm I, not worked up over that. I am worked up over the hypocrisy uh, of those who say, not in my backyard, but yet do something about the absence of housing. I don't say the second, but I kind of feel strongly about the first because it affects me personally in an adverse way. And I have uh, paid what I paid for my housing because I want what it offers and I don't want people to take it away. So that that's, to me, an, an issue that can be discussed further. The hypocrisy is unacceptable, but merely wanting to 
preserve the quality of your life if it's not directly harming somebody else. It may be indirectly by increasing the cost of housing, but that's what the market is. Right. Well, again, as we talked about earlier, you know, my, my mind, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. The right way is through uh, contracts between homeowners to preserve the character and quality of their neighborhood. I don't have any problem with that. But zoning, oftentimes with zoning, people who don't even live in that neighborhood control how it's used. I, I don't understand why people in the Sunset District in San, San Francisco, which is way out by the Pacific Ocean, should have any say about what goes on in, um, you know, the, the Marina District, which is way on the other side of the city. Um, so I, I just think that um, with private homeowners associations, the people who are impacted and share the same common interests would make the decisions about the character of their neighborhood rather than people who are not even in that neighborhood and probably pass through it maybe twice a year and really don't even care about the neighborhood. And I, I don't see how that's efficient or effective way of structuring things. We agree. But I do agree We, we agree. in terms of there, there, you should be able to form a contractual relationship and control, um, you know, behavior in that area. Like, it puts limits on you. Like, you can't have parties after 11 o'clock because of the noise enforcements in that community or something. But also, as a result of that, you benefit because your neighbors can't impose that cost on you as well. So you give up a little freedom, but you gain freedom by tying the hands of your neighbors to do things that are going to harm you. I have no problem with contract, contractual um, clauses like that or charters like that. Um, I think that's the correct way to do it. We are in simpatico. We agree 100%. Now, uh, before we get to the solutions um, and before we run out of time, regretfully, just uh, one question I'd like to ask you. It's conceptual, uh, and that is, is there a housing shortage in California and in other metropolitan areas? And if the answer is yes, what does that mean? Well, to get back to what I was talking about very early on the show, is an economist would look at a shortage in terms of capital flows. Are, are there, is there capital that entrepreneurs want to invest in a market to, to build good X, whatever that good is, and supply more of it to the market that's being prevented from doing so by, again, these restrictions that we talked about? Um, that's how an economist would look like would look at a shortage and say um, there's a lot of entrepreneurs lining up to produce more housing here and are willing to invest more capital, but because of the delays and the costs and the restrictions, it can't be done, and so they're doing it in Arizona or Nevada or Texas, which are booming right now in terms of housing construction. So that would be how an economist would look at it because we really don't know, you know, like how many kids living in the basement of their parents' home would want an apartment if the apartment prices were a lot lower. I mean, we're just making a guess in terms of what that would be. I'm sure some of them would move out and have their own apartment if, if apartment costs were lower, but how many, I, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. I mean, it's just guessing and we don't know, you know, how many people would start uh, new households if the, housing prices were a lot lower, so people would move out of the granny flat in their parents' backyard and buy their own home. Um, again, I mean, that's really just speculation. So what I would look at is not not prices. It would be at capital. Does cap more capital want to come into that market? Clearly in California, entrepreneurs would trip over each other to get in here if it was um, you know profitable to do so. And the, the all the restrictions eliminate the profitability, and therefore they go elsewhere to build. Now, Larry, we have we have only about a minute. What what are some of the headlines of the easy, low hanging fruit solutions? We have about a minute left that government could easily adopt to increase the supply of housing. We have about a minute. Well, 
I don't know if they're easy, but I think the things that would have the biggest impact would be to abolish CEQA and to use it maybe for uh, not, not to use it for infill development, which is development in already developed areas. It seems ridiculous to have CEQA reviews for development inside of a hustling and bustling neighborhood. It makes no sense to me. So that would be, I'd either radically modify or abolish CEQA because, as you mentioned, it doesn't serve its original intent anymore to protect the environment. All it does is reduce um, construction of much-needed housing. Um, and zoning, I, again, I would favor uh, the private neighborhood association model rather than the current zoning model. I think you'd get a lot more built. I don't think any of this would be easy, though, because in California there's so many well-organized groups the NIMBY groups, but also the environmental groups. There's the established homeowners that are going to fight back. Um, Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco has introduced SB 50 um, repeatedly, three times now, and, it's, and which was intended to kind of take away some of the um, uh, regulatory <coughs> authority from local governments and, and, and allow for more construction to be built. And that was struck down three times in a row. Um, so I, for me personally, I think the best way, the quickest way to get out of this regulatory thicket that we're in is is a ballot initiative, a, con- a state constitutional amendment that would reestablish private property rights to housing development in California, would allow um, residential housing to be built Larry, on private w- property. Um, and sorry to interrupt, Larry. But we're running out of time. Follow Larry at uh, Lawrence McQuinlan at EconDoc. Uh, follow him on Twitter and the Independent Institute as well. Larry, thank you so much for your time today. And stay well and stay happy and get outside. You too. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Larry.